Bye-bye. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Welcome back to Saturday School. This season is on Asian American music movies. And if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, we've covered films like the documentary Cruise in J-Town and the musicals Coma the Musical and Wave Twisters. And today we're going to go back in history with a 1989 documentary called Forbidden City USA by Arthur Dong. So this documentary is about the Chinatown nightclub scene in San Francisco, starting from about the 1930s. In particular, it focuses on one nightclub of the Forbidden City that was on the peripheries of Chinatown. So it was this place where non-Chinese people, for instance, like USGIs and stuff, they would feel comfortable going to this club because it's not like it's deep in Chinatown. But it was close enough that made them feel like, ooh, we're getting a taste of some kind of exotic Chinese landscape. And in it, they discovered... Basically, like what you would find at any other nightclub, a bunch of young, talented dancers, musicians doing post-vaudeville showcases of dances from the world or crooner music and a little bit of, I wouldn't call it burlesque necessarily, but uh, showcases of bodies, female bodies. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It was there. Every day. It's like a three-ring circus yeah. every day. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. There's something going on. Oh, there. something going on. Wasn't this or that, this or that. But then within the community, it was also a little bit scandalous because it wasn't traditional Chinese dance. They were kind of seen as the bad girls and bad boys of the Chinese immigrant scene, I guess. (laughs) Of course, what we did in the 30s and 40s were shocking to the Chinese community and confusing for the uh, Caucasian people. No one took us very seriously until the Forbidden City opened its doors. So we said, come on, let's show the world our stuff. All the people that they interviewed, their title is like the Chinese Fred Astaire, the Chinese Sinatra, the Chinese Sophie Tucker. So it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact that they were known this way and even though this was all coded as Chinese, it was branded as the all Chinese review. They found ways to connect what they were doing to what everyone thought was hip at that time. Therefore, it's kind of like what we all aspire to today with entertainment. I mean, what was going on in the 1930s is still in many ways what's happening now. Trying to be something that can enter the mainstream, but also do it on your own terms. And also like, to what extent should we be selling our Asian-ness as part of that package? And also like just these age old Asian American questions of like, oh, my parents think it's strange that I'm doing entertainment, but this is what I want to do. But I think like one important difference is that because of things like the Chinese Exclusion Acts, these weren't necessarily the children of immigrants. They may have been already here for a couple of generations. So I don't think they had as much pressure to have to go into certain kinds of fields. It was more that within the community, there was this idea that what they were doing is somewhat sexualized and maybe sort of uh, related to prostitution, as opposed to the fact that they are not in jobs that are going to make money, because I don't think that was really something that Asian Americans were doing. Like They weren't making a lot of money at that time. Therefore, I, I feel like it might have been even easier for them to choose this as a vocation. I don't know if you felt that way. So that reminds me of another documentary that we wanted to talk about called Long Story Short, which is a story of actress Jodie Long. Many of you may recognize from shows like All American Girl or... Sullivan uh, and Son. 
Oh, yeah, she was in Sullivan's son. But her parents, Larry and Trudy Leung, were part of the scene. All through, like, the first, second, third grade, when people would, like, draw pictures of themselves, what do you want to be? And they'd draw nurses and doctors and policemen. I always drew myself on the stage because growing up backstage and seeing my parents and seeing my dad do it for so long, it just seemed pretty natural to me. We're a show business family. Watching her dad talk about how he auditioned for Flower Drum Song and Gene Kelly was the director of the original show. So he came and he told Gene Kelly, they call me the Chinese Gene Kelly, but I thought I was better. If anything, it's they have this cockiness to it, like, but it plays off on stage like a sort of swagger. Yeah, swagger. And, and, yeah. and, and, it, and it turns into great onstage presence, charisma and humor. And this feeling like, yeah, we know we're being orientalized, but we're making money off of you. And we're going to have fun with it. You feel like they had power. If the mainstream doesn't let you in, then we're going to create it ourselves. And that's what Forbidden City was. It gave work to a lot of entertainers. It allowed them to expand on their craft, to tell their own stories. And in the case of Larry Long and his family, to end up on Broadway or on Ed Sullivan's show. Yeah, so one of the storylines of Long Story Short was that Jody Long's parents were on the Ed Sullivan's show, but of course back then there weren't recordings, they had never seen themselves live, and she tracked down the tape. And you watch the tape, and I feel like that performance embodies all the things that we're talking about because you can see how aware they are of how they're perceived and how they're going to break that stereotype. And now from China. It still makes it seem like Larry Long is going to come out and give the audience some peek into some authentic Chinese performance. And he comes out with, from our eyes, something that seems a little inauthentic between the clothes from like dynastic garb and the chop socky, like fake Chinese. And then he just breaks out of it. He basically winks at the audience. I'm actually a hip vaudeville singer. Chinese Gene Kelly. Yeah, exactly. And now I'm going to show you what I can do. And Jody Long's mother comes out. They play with this stereotype of the obedient Chinese wife. But then she kind of breaks out of that. Yeah, I mean, she has swagger too. She has sass and it's played for laughs and it's great. And it's, um, and it holds up pretty well today. When you see the interviews in Forbidden City, USA, you can tell that they play with that. I do love all the ads that they showed of Forbidden City. I think my favorite was, it was something like, come here and watch the Oriental rug cutters, stuff like that. But it don't take the visitor long to discover that the most popular dishes in Chinatown are Oriental. They would lead in promos with stuff like, um, I forgot exactly, was it like, are Chinese girls really like that? Or, you know, like... Now I know it's true what they say about Chinese women. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's playing to this bizarre stereotype of Asian female genitalia. Is that what it is? Did I miss no, that? No, I mean, they don't spell it out because this is like a PBS documentary, but I don't, I don't know if you've heard all of this. I have not. <laughs> oh, well, you're probably lucky then. Look at what we learn at Saturday school. I don't, need, I don't want to go into the gory details of that one. <laughs> I thought it was just a very general exoticism thing, but I didn't know it was so specific. Oh, it's specific. And it's just one of many examples of the kind of generalized Orientalism that they were aware of, especially like this gendered and sexualized version of Orientalism. And when you see some of the promo photos, I mean, like these women are naked, like they're topless. So this would be kind of a daring place to go. But I was kind of thinking about how much has or hasn't changed in the span of so many decades. Nowadays, if you think about Asians and dancing, 
I think there are people who probably still think of very traditional Asian dances. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think with stuff like America's Best Dance Crew and the world of dance and K-pop, I feel like there might be a new idea of Asians in dance, at least for the younger generations. I remember like, I don't think you were there for this. Like, So I was out with a bunch of Asian American male friends, some of whom you know, uh, we were at a bar in downtown Santa Barbara where it was mostly white people. We walked in and then like some white guy just said, oh, here comes America's best dance crew. Oh my gosh, really? And it was, yeah, and I think like I was really confused by this. First of all, who would ever say that to me? <laughs> um, but like, should I be offended by were this? Were you offended or did you think it was cool? I mean, I'm offended because it's sort of like, as always, whenever you walk into a place, the first thing I notice about you is your race. Yeah. And it's like, uh, yeah. But, I mean, there are worse things to be called, I suppose. I know. You guys should have started dancing, and then they would have booed. So, but, like, that's, <laughs> like, that's even more just, like, disappointing just about the Yeah, yeah, of course. Wait, no, but, I mean, what we're talking about, you could have taken it and flipped it. That's true. And that's why I have such admiration for these performers at Forbidden City. Like, this 1930s, 1940s era... It doesn't feel like they could dance because they were being taught this at home. They just picked it up and they soaked in American culture and nightclub culture and Hollywood culture and Broadway culture and they just excelled at it. And But actually, they, not everyone excelled at it. Like one of my favorite parts in Forbidden City USA is when the choreographers talked about all these like pretty girls and boys who came in to audition and they like they could not dance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they had to like teach these non-professionals how to be stars. And I thought that was cool, too, because it's like we often think about how people of color in the United States have to go above and beyond. They have to not just be the best. They have to be the best to the point where people won't see their race anymore. Whereas white people can just be pretty and then they can go on to be the stars of Hollywood blockbusters, even if they can't act that well. Yeah. And for Vin City, they kind of had that. Like these people were just really good looking and they just somehow taught them to dance and they became the stars. Yeah, we need more of that in Hollywood. <laughs> Yeah, because it works. Because as I always tell my students, film is a very, very superficial medium and hotness goes a long way. Very visual medium. It just plays to our own kind of desires that way. And I think stage, music, dance, um, a similar thing happens. I mean, not to discount the role of talents, but um, I don't know. I think as people of color, we're so obsessed with talents and achieving via talents and through meritocracy, as opposed to just thinking about sheer will and charisma and entrepreneurialism <laughs> and, and good looks. You should put more value in people's good looks. <laughs> that's, that's a quote from... I'm trying not to be stereotyped as the girl who made the haikus with Cody's calendar. <laughs> it's not helping. Really? I feel, I feel like they are they come from the same place. Maybe it's because I know you, but because um, I feel like haikus for hotties, I always felt like it, it's itself a, a form of cultural criticism. Oh, yeah. A lot of things we're talking about with this episode about flipping the script on stereotypes of race as well as gender. It seems like the same conversation. When I was re-watching Long Story Short this time, I guess I always remembered it being more about the search for this footage. Jody Long's parents were on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1950, and they had memories of it. They remember knacking coals on that episode, and they were never able to find it. So they went on the search, and they eventually find it. And it's the joy of unearthing Asian American moving picture history, and being able to see it and react to it and share it with others. That's really powerful to me. And uh, and as... that's what we're doing here. Is that where you're going with this? 
You are correct. <laughs> That's one of the greatest things in Long Story Short. Watching the parents watch the footage of themselves on the Ed of Sullivan show so many decades later. You find out like how historical amnesia plays out. Like they keep talking about how I don't remember any of this. I don't remember doing this. And then you watch her dad and her dad is like mouthing every word he's saying. Yeah. And and there's something that's like, it may not be remembered in the mind, but it's remembered in the body. And this is the archive of, of Asian America. And it was such a good moment because he had thought he bombed on the show. And also Jody Long as a performer, like didn't know if it would be good. Yeah. And the person she was working with to find that footage wasn't Asian American. And she was like, oh yeah, it was good. As if like, you know, most things at Ed Sullivan show were good. But you can sense that like for an Asian American family member or community, like you invest so much more in that history and you hope that it is worthy of legend um, because we don't have a whole lot of entertainment legends. And the act of, of recovering this footage creates a legend and we can remember it as such. Yeah, because Larry and Trudy Young, in the end, they had to give it up. There weren't any opportunities. Um, that's not a good note to end on. <laughs> But it's like, it's a reminder that so much of Asian American history is collected through these little bursts, like little blips, blip on the radar, blip on the Ed Selvin show. Yeah. And a blip was heard, but it can just fade away. And we need to honor these moments. Exactly. And you can honor these moments by watching stuff like Long Story Short and Forbidden City USA. Correct. Long Story Short is on Amazon Video. Forbidden City USA, you can find it on Vimeo for two ninety nine. And um, you can find the new digitally remastered version that UCLA Film Archive did. It looked beautiful. Like, I, I couldn't believe how good it looked. It looks totally pristine. And to be able to see those faces and those dance moves on stage from the 1930s and 40s, I treasure this documentary for that. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. We have a Tiny Letter newsletter you can sign up for to get lecture notes. Tinyletter.com slash Saturday School Podcast. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. Next week, your assignment is to watch the 2010 film, The Taka Kors. Class dismissed. Hey, are you still listening to podcasts on the treadmill? If so, you should check out another show from the Potluck Podcast Collective, like the Korean Drama Podcast, the Korean Drama Rewatch Podcast for people who don't watch Korean dramas. For this first season, host Will Choi is torturing himself and guests Phil Yu and Joanna Lee with 25 episodes of the popular 2009 K-drama Boys Over Flowers. They watch it so you don't have to. See you next week!